The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'd see you down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Manisha Taylor. Manisha is the CEO of Swaggerlicious, an organization that uses football to create social cohesion and help with mental health problems. She's also a coach at the Academy of Queen's Park Rangers, a London football team that plays in the championship. Manisha is a celebrated activist and speaker on issues related to football and was awarded a prestigious MBE for services to football and diversity in sport in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Manisha. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Well, it's debatable because my cousin wanted me to support Everton. My whole family are Liverpool fans. I actually support um, Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't see that one coming. And what is your favorite political song? I'm not sure about it being political, but a song that that I do quite like is Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. And uh, I think it's quite relevant at the moment as well. You know, it just the whole feel good factor, especially with, with the, the current climate of the world. Absolutely. And finally, what's your favorite political book? The book I'm reading at the moment, actually, I mean, I think it's great. It's called Consigliere. It's Leading from the Shadows. And it's all about how to be a good number two. Very much enjoying that book at the moment. So mental health has long been an issue in professional sports, including in football. I'm a fan of German football, and I remember the tragic suicide of Robert Enke, who is a former goalkeeper for a German national team in 2009. He committed suicide. He was only 32 years old. Now, more recently, several current and former players have talked openly about their mental health issues, such as Andres Iniesta and Gregory van der Wiel. Do you think we're seeing a change in the discussion of mental health issues in professional football? Yeah, I actually do. I think, like you've just mentioned, footballers, and, and what we know about footballers is they have profile and they have a platform and they have a base and a voice that can help influence change. And I think it was a long time coming where we have those with mass following, those with influence who can help create that change because, as we know, mental health and well-being certainly not talked about and openly spoken about in previous years, whereas it's great that we have greater conversations around that subject and there are footballers with profile who are being honest about their own mental health issues and relating it to their careers and then being in football. But I think also having a wider appreciation. So, for example, uh, Marcus Rashford, and although his work recently, and he was honoured with an MBE for his services to vulnerable children, there is still a mental health impact to that and to poverty, as we know. So, you know, I think it's great that there's wider work also now being done, which can also connect well-being together with that. So I definitely think it needs more and more conversations. But I do feel that there's governing bodies, that there's organisations and charities now that are doing more work and project work around this area. I know that given the pandemic, there's a lot more talk about the impact of the pandemic and COVID-19 to young children especially if right. we continue to have young children now, you know, in a, in a lockdown, for example, for us in England and in London, yep. who are continued to be homeschooled and are going through various changes themselves. So it's good that the subject has been spoken about. 
And I think that we need more people of influence, be that footballers or not, who are in a position of power who can help create that change. Absolutely. And COVID-19 has also impacted athletes, including professional footballers. Professional Footballers Association, PFA, warned about growing anxiety and depression among professional footballers. And FIFPRO, the Global Players Union, recently noted that women footballers in particular have been ignored by national associations. Do you think that this is just a temporary shock that will disappear after the pandemic is over? Or is this more structural that footballer associations are speaking about anxiety and depression? I think there's a combination of things. Like I said earlier, the subject itself was taboo. No similar to when we talk about other protected characteristics like gender equality, homophobia, racism, in the same vein that these things, they're there. But sometimes it's either it's hard to prove or it's just a case of, oh, we just got to get on with it. Let's just get on with it. And the taboo, particularly in football, you know, it being masculine and macho. So you think about mental health and well-being. It was just part of the course. You just just carry on. I'll just get on with it. And I think that that's been so ingrained. Now we're asking for change. And it goes back to what I said before, that if we have players that are open about their own mental health issues, players who are part of this, the PF, who are their union. And I do think that the PFA now are taking on board what's been said. And I think that the PFA are doing some work to try and help, just like with other governing bodies, like the Football Association as well. And people like, for example, Michael Bennett at the PFA, who are doing some work in this area. And I think that that just needs to continue because the more right. the more conversation there is around it and the more that it then, you know, almost trickles down to younger players, that we can help eliminate that taboo. It is okay to talk about how you feel and you're not going to be judged in doing so. I think there is a generational issue here too. And that also brings it to the coaches. I just read an interview with the Dutch coach, Dick Advocaat, who is 72 and has been around for a long time. He was interviewed with a younger coach. And one of the things they talked about was how they related to players. And Advocaat was very proud of saying like, yeah, I don't know whether they're married or whether they have children or things like that. Whereas what I notice with younger coaches and even think about someone like Klopp at Liverpool, who is much more engaged and they're much more open about these type of things. And I wonder, do coaches play a big role in this too? Yeah, definitely. I think that we think about coaching, you can have all the the tactical, technical knowledge there is in the world, but fundamentally you have to be able to connect with the players. Mm -hmm. and connect holistically know what they like what they don't like know what makes them tick because if you know that you're going to get the best out of them and then i think also you need to know like you've just mentioned there around other factors that actually form their identity that make them who they are because Mm -hmm. that all contributes to them holistically as a player and i think that has to come first and it's certainly something that my head of coaching at at qpr cross ramsey says that your connection with the players has to come first because if you can't connect with the players then it almost has a knock-on effect and spiral effect so you're ceo of swaggerlicious which focuses on football and mental health tell us a bit more about your programs the organization was set up when i took my career change from being a full-time teacher The main programs that I run are around well-being and mental health. One is mainly targeted towards children. I'm publishing a book with Rutledge Education that should be published by April this year. And it's 50 well-being lessons for the diverse primary classroom. Fundamentally, there are 50 lesson plans that I've trialed and tested over the years. And uh, there's photocopyable and supplemented resources 
attached to each lesson plan. And it covers a range of topics from, for example, bereavement to uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, where we're talking about how your identity and your ethnicity is affected through racism. There's also elements in there around homophobia, disability. So that's one aspect. And it's also related to where I could go in-house, so go into schools or youth mm -hmm. organisations and deliver this piece of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other aspect of that would be adult training. So it's working with teachers or youth professionals, predominantly grassroots organisations and charities, and training their educators to actually go and deliver this piece of work. The other one in, in relation to adults is looking at how we can use football as a sport to engage with adults with disability and mental health. Now, a lot of that heavily relies on funding. And unfortunately, there was a project that I was running in partnership with my local non-league club, which is Wingate and Finchley Football Club. And we were relying heavily on voluntary services, including myself and any other resource that we could find. And right. it's just really challenging. In a recent interview with BBC Sport, you said, it's ludicrous. I'm the only South Asian female in the role I'm in. And that refers to the role as a coach at the academy at a professional football club. Why are you the only one? So it actually refers to my full-time role. You know, the more I've looked into it, what's good is that there are actually more South Asian people. So both male and female now mm -hmm. in the professional game. And that's across all 92 clubs in the inclusive of the Football League and the Premier League. Now, I currently am the only South Asian female as a coach in any case, but I'm the only South Asian person, male and female, in my full-time coaching job across the 92 clubs. The reason I say it's ludicrous, because I know that there are people from South Asian background who have the qualifications to do the job. Mm -hmm. So my question really always is, like you've asked, is, is, is why is that? Is it because of a lack of opportunity? Is it lack of access? And also, is it the fact that the industry itself is so saturated? There are already people in those jobs. So the type of job that I have, each club is very different mm -hmm. in terms of their models and their structure. But arguably, the type of job that I have, you would probably only have one or two people in each club. Now, right. the big, say the bigger clubs, the clubs with a lot more money will have full-time age group coaches. But in a club like mine, like Category 2 club, we have mainly part-time coaches and we have mm -hmm. myself who leads a part of the coaching department along with two other colleagues. Right. So if those jobs are already taken, it doesn't provide an opening for somebody else mm -hmm. unless I was to move on or right. someone else was to move on. Yep. That's one thing. Then you've got the fact that there are very few jobs anyway, regardless of what gender you are, what ethnicity you are. Mm -hmm. Then you've also got the fact that it's still a very old boys club. So it's still right. very much about the culture and the environment itself of football is still very much about who you know and how these opportunities can then come about based on who you know. Right. Now, I do believe it's changing, but I don't think it's changing quick enough. And actually, when you say old boys club, it's an old white boys club. And so this is a, an intersectional issue because both gender and race play a role here, but they have different origins within sports and particularly within football. For instance, as most sports, football is separated by sex, with men football overshadowing women football. But women football is on the rise, and has this increased the status of women within the football world? Yeah, definitely. When I was growing up, I didn't see many or any female footballers on TV. If you said to me in the early 80s, do you name a female footballer? I wouldn't be able to do that. 
So it's definitely evolved over time. And I think what's great now is that there's a lot more importance, and rightly so, and a platform given. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing. It's a platform that's given to women's football. And what's also good is that you've got, so for example, there was like Alex Morgan, you've got players who from overseas are being attracted to the WSL, which then gives more prestige. I think that's good. It gets people talking. You've also got games now on mainstream TV being publicized and shown. And there's fans, you know, the people that are watching the games. The viewership is good. It's increasing. So all of that together shows that it is marketable that people are interested in it. I don't think anyone can say no one's interested in women's football because they are, they clearly are. Now, not only is football not racially segregated, but for many decades now, non-white players have been present at all levels of football, particularly in England. And it's not uncommon to see majority non-white teams. And yet, few coaches or managers are non-white. How can this be resolved? So I think I go back to using my club as an example of great model of best practice. So we look at our owners. We have a very diverse board. Mm -hmm. Our owners are from various backgrounds and ethnicities. Our director of football, Les Ferdinand, is black. You know, you think, okay, well, it's by no coincidence then. And he's the best person for the job. You Mm -hmm. know, he it's not a case of he's just there because he's a black man. And then it's by no coincidence that you have, say, Chris Ramsey as head of coaching and technical director and also works with the first team. And, you know, if I look at QPR, we've got people who are in the jobs that they're in based on merit. There's clear diversity with regards to backgrounds. And and most importantly, I think in terms of the environment, it's open to embracing difference. So what it won't do is say, well, I'm just going to take you because you're my mate or because you look similar to me. Right. And I think people will have different opinions, but I do believe that you're more than likely to take people that are like you. Right. I think that's only human nature. So Mm -hmm. unless you have a different set of people, you're always going to get the same type of people. So that's fine doing that. But then you need to have diversity within that environment to then get diverse people. QPR has done that. There are many other clubs in London, which are also in very diverse neighborhoods and therefore potentially have very diverse supporters. And yet very few have done it. Do you think this is a top-down issue? You spoke about the diversity of the ownership. I assume most ownerships are not as diverse. Do you think it starts at the top or can it be done bottom-up? I think it's got to be top-down, but I'm only basing that on my experience at QPR. For me, I look at myself and I think as an Indian woman, who's not played the game as a pro, has come in from like the world of education, mm-hmm. has a completely different skill set. You know, I had my UA for B before I became part-time, which was the prerequisite. But somebody like me, really, who's now in a full-time job in a professional football club, that'd be unheard of. It, yeah. So when I look at myself and I think about the environment that I'm in, yes, I had the qualifications. I, I volunteered. I man Mark Chris. And I wanted to learn everything there was to learn about how he operates, how the environment operates. Fundamentally, I was given an opportunity by somebody who was given an opportunity himself. Yeah, He knows what it's like. And I'm at a club where from top down, it's diverse. People are embracing the difference and they will recruit the best people for the job. And that's how it should be. Absolutely. You've already mentioned it. Um, QPR is one of the few clubs to have a black director of football, former England great Les Ferdinand. Now, one of the things that often happens is when non-white people get into prominent positions, 
they're kind of put at a very tough spot where they have to represent all of their category, right? There can't be just an individual. They are now the voice of their group. As a consequence, Les Ferdinand has been criticized a lot for saying that taking a knee for Black Lives Matter will not bring change. How do you look at these acts of so-called symbolic politics? Do they work? Is there a special role for non-white players or non-white coaches? I think Les is 100% right, because it goes back to what I said earlier, which is to create change, we need change in behaviors and we need change in action. And it's all very well. People use symbols to illustrate that they care about different subject matters. But you could use that once and it not make a difference and it not have an impact. Whereas action is crucial. Mm -hmm. What do you do to create that change? So you can take the knee and do things like that and, and support the campaigns. Yes, of course, you know, you can do that. But who really is making that difference? So and I'll go back to our club. And I think people can't say that Les Ferdinand was wrong and it's immoral in terms of what he said, because by far we are the most diverse football club that there is. Right. So his actions and the actions of the club as a whole reflect the fact that we do embrace difference and change. Actions speak louder than words. Now, I'm a football romantic who decries the corporate nature of the Premier League and the Champions League and longs for a return to the football of the 1970s, which, of course, will never happen again. But do you think that the fact that professional football has become a multi-billion industry has worsened mental health problems? Maybe. I think that it's always been there. I think that the difference, the biggest difference now is there are people who are openly talking about it. I don't believe mental health didn't exist in the 70s. I think it did. I just think that it was very much like I spoke about in terms of this culture around being macho and you just get on with it. I think the difference now, it is spoken about. That's a good thing because that can then hopefully have an impact on other people to openly talk about how they feel. We've seen sad cases of suicide of footballers, of managers, where it's been you know, a build-up of emotions and feeling as though that you've just got no outlet, that you've got no one to turn to and talk to. Now, earlier you spoke about the machismo of male football in particular as one of the reasons why mental health issues are problematic. I assume another part is just athlete culture, right? You compete to be the best and mental health is just a form of weakness in competition, leaving aside masculinity. So are mental health issues, in your experience, more openly debated within women football than in male football? My experience of women's football was working with very young players. And because it was with young players, it was just part of your coaching, taking into account the psychosocial part of the player is fundamentally important and how you engage with them and connect with them, mm -hmm. ensuring that they feel not only comfortable, but you know, they're willing to try things without fear of failure. Yeah. So like you spoke about, you know, in terms of competition, you've got young players who come into a very competitive environment very early and you want it to be an enjoyable experience. But unfortunately, the culture is brutal. And I mm -hmm. think we can't get away from that. But the culture is such that you are competing against your friends yep. because there will be a retained release. Are you kept or are you not kept? And then you've yeah. got cases where you've got, you know, 10, 11 year olds released from one club, trial to another, then move on, trial to another. And as a young person, that's tough. Yeah. And, and how you manage that as a coach, as a player, you know, yourself, 
but also your family. Mm. How do they help you manage that experience? And I think that there's no right or wrong answers in this, but that's a tough task. And that inevitably can lead to mental health problems. And, And I think that it's no wonder we're seeing that, especially in the UK. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the relationship between football and mental health? I think it would be fear. I think fear of being deemed as weak and not being able to manage in an environment that's perceived to be competitive. Whereas actually what we know and definitely I think the way that coaching and courses are going is the psychosocial part of an athlete is fundamentally the most important. And we have to help athletes manage how they feel and manage their emotions, manage their mindset to enable them to perform to the best of their own ability. Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Manisha. No, thank you for inviting me. If you want to know more about Manisha Taylor, you can follow her on Twitter at at Swaggerlicious, S-W-A-G-G-A-R-L-I-C-I-O-U-S. You can learn more about her organization at www.swaggerlicious.com. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunk out. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.